Hello and welcome to another episode of Parentline Podcast. I'm your host, Roger Gowdy, and in this episode, I was delighted to speak to Glenda Walsh of Stranmillis University College, Belfast. Glenda is Head of Early Years at Stranmillis, and she's also Assistant Director at the Centre for Research and Educational Underachievement. So in short, what Glenda doesn't know about educating our children and young people isn't worth knowing. We covered lots of things, primarily the impact of COVID and lockdown on our children and young people and their education during that time. But more broadly, our whole approach to education in Northern Ireland and how parents can help strike that balance between academic achievement and encouraging that, but also ensuring well-being is key for our children and young people. I know I learned a lot from our conversation and I hope you get lots of value from it too. So on with the show. Welcome to the Parentline podcast where we discuss the joys and challenges of modern parenting and explore how we as parents can give our children the best start in life. So hello, Glenda, and welcome to the Parentline podcast. Thank you very much indeed. A real pleasure. So we first met Glenda, I think it was maybe like four or five years ago at a conference that children in Northern Ireland were running and you came to, to speak at that conference and I was really impressed by your passion for early years and that kind of nurturing and play-based learning and so anytime I see your name attached to anything uh, I I always read it with interest and I saw a a recent article you did in NI for Kids around school life after lockdown and I found it fascinating and I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast to talk a bit more about that whole area. Super, that's great. Before we dive into that, I mean, obviously your principal lecturer, Stram Millis, head of early years, uh, university life at the minute has got to be totally different from my experience of university life uh, pre-COVID. Can you tell me about some of the impacts of that? Yes, I must admit it's a challenge for all of us at the minute, the lecturers and the students in many respects. Most of our teaching at present is online. Students are really doing their best under the circumstances. They're attending all of the online seminars, etc., etc. But I would say that the one thing that's slightly missing when we go online are those relationships For me, relationships and teaching are paramount. Those little times when the individual um, students can come up at the end of a lecture or whatever it might be to ask a question about an assignment or even just a comment about what they had heard. And that really, um, to me, is what um, teaching is all about. And I do feel at the minute they're missing out on that end of things. We're all missing out on those relationships and that's what COVID's doing. It's depriving us of those natural interactions that we all love so well. I still catch up with all of my university friends. They're friends for life and those friendships are so important and I don't feel they've had a real chance as yet to really find those university friends who will help them through throughout the next four years together. And I mean, obviously, lockdown and COVID and the pandemic has impacted us all in lots of different ways. But one of the, I suppose, most impacted groups of society are children, children who were at school and then for a long period of time weren't at school and are now transitioning back into a different type of school. You were involved in a in a big piece of research. I've got the very thick research booklet here. Um, the title was Homeschooling in Northern Ireland during the COVID-19 crisis, the experiences of parents and carers. 
And it's a fascinating report, but I wonder, could you pull out some of those kind of key findings from it and tell us what did you find that parents and children's experience was during lockdown? Well, yes, we had the privilege of 2,000 responses from parents for that piece of work across Northern Ireland. We were able to find um, quite contrasting differences amongst parents in the main in that sense. We tended to have two two schools of thought came to the fore. Uh, There was one set of parents um, who seemed really quite confident about working with their children at home, who really enjoyed that opportunity um, to learn with their children. And those parents tended to be, not always, but tended to be educated parents um, who themselves were confident with the curriculum, who were confident with um, literacy and numeracy in the main in that respect. In contrast to that, we had another group of parents, mainly our key workers, our key workers who were helping us through the whole COVID um, lockdown period. First and foremost, they may not have at the same time to interact with their children where homeschooling was concerned. And then in other cases, some of those um, parents felt that little bit less confident in terms of the schooling process. Furthermore, in many respects, some of them even had challenges around the whole broadband internet Mm. connection type thing and they were losing out there as well. Some maybe didn't have the, the, the resources that they needed in terms of access to laptops, access perhaps some on occasions to printers themselves. So um, where some parents really enjoyed the experience, other parents found it a real challenge and they felt that their children were missing out and they, they saw it as a real struggle. Yes, one of the other parts of the report that really jumped out at me was that depending on the age of the child, lockdown seemed to suit younger children more than it suited older children. And they kind of, the younger children felt that maybe they got more out of it and the the older children maybe missed more of the school experience. Yes, that was another finding that came to the fore. And it was no surprise to me in many respects because um, young children really do learn through that kind of home-based pedagogy, the opportunity to, uh, to play alongside their parents, to go outdoors if a garden were available and avail of the natural materials in the outdoors. And that more relaxed environment in many respects suits young children and the pressure of having to sit in seats for the most part of the day and engage in formal literacy and numeracy tasks um, was almost a, a relief to them when they could set those aside in many respects. Where older children were concerned, I think it was friendship groups that they tended to miss the most. Those peer relationships which become more and more important to children as they do um, get older. Also the challenges of having to engage with platforms such as Google Classroom etc. Um, which again in some occasions worked really well. On other days if you're broadband was down, then there was a challenge there and there was a pressure of trying to catch up on that type of thing as well without the support of the expert teacher um, just at hand to them. Again, something like, I, as I was saying earlier about the lecturer in the, the seminar room, again, they missed those relationships with their teachers likewise. And you mentioned the pressure to catch up during the lockdown, but I imagine there's a lot of parents who are feeling now pressure to catch up now that kids are back to school that we know what have they missed out on maybe what's their experience compared to their peers you know have they had any learning loss and especially kids maybe are at the AQE stage or at the GCSE and A level stage and there seems to be a culture now of having to get tutors or feeling you might need to get tutoring for your child there seems to be a kind of competitive edge to it 
what would you say to parents in terms of trying to balance that, you know, very natural pressure and, and anxiety around wanting your child to be well educated and academic success with the the well-being of the child, that kind of aspect as well? Well, with my academic hat on, I would very much be of the opinion that we have to remember what's important. What's the most important thing where our children is concerned? And it's principally their health and well-being. Children have been part of this whole process and they're not removed from it in any way. They're listening to the media. They're stressed as well when they hear, you know, that um, there's going to be another lockdown or there's the risk of um, hospitals going to be inundated again, etc., etc. I think it's important as a parent that uh, we realise that we must prioritise their well-being at the minute. Yes, in the background, we're concerned about academic progress and whatever, but let the experts worry about that. Where we're concerned as parents, it's so important that we allay our children's fears, that we give them the opportunity to de-stress, to let off steam. Where I am concerned, I would be emphasising the importance of play. And there's different forms of play. We're thinking of play for young children in principle, where they're engaged in imaginative play um, with their dolls and their teddy bears, etc, etc. But as children grow older, they need to avail of those downtimes too. They need those opportunities to play on that Xbox, to de-stress and whatever it might be. I'm not suggesting that we should be overdoing that by any means, but children's well-being, the opportunity for them to engage in some way with their peers in a relaxed fashion is what those children need at present. As a parent myself, I have two children, uh, three children in total, but two of whom who are experiencing this uh, in real depth as well. One who is going through the whole transfer, the other who is actually uh, going to be doing his GCSE this year as well and whilst I can be putting the pressure on them oh goodness it's all about uh, work what are you doing with this GCSE subjects are concerned etc etc I do have to pinch myself sometimes and remember that well-being is so important and that my child will not do well either in the transfer or either in the GCSEs if they don't feel good about themselves and that's what we as parents should be prioritising at the minute. I have to say I feel quite relieved that my, my son is three now and uh, we had a COVID baby as well so uh, my daughter's Delightful. 14 weeks um, but they hadn't reached that kind of academic stage where I had to think about homeschooling and and all of that because listen to some of the stories parents it's tough like it was you know trying to juggle you know sometimes full-time jobs with with facilitating learning for your for your children was just a big ask wasn't it? There is no doubt as a university lecturer, um, our work didn't go away. We were still working full time throughout the whole lockdown period. And yet I had still three children, three sons to look after, one of whom at that stage was going through the whole A-level debacle. Then the other one um, who was thinking about GCSEs at the time. And then um, the, the little one in that dreaded P6 year when it's all about preparing for the transfer. And I really did feel um, caught at times as to where I should be, you know what I mean? Should I be prioritising the kids? I'd still the workload to get through, it's still the student marking to do. And um, it was a challenge, there is no doubt. And whilst it was lovely to get the opportunity to spend time with the boys and to really share their learning with them, I must admit at the end of lockdown, I was relieved that schools did open and that the, uh, the, the teachers were, the experts themselves, where the teaching was concerned, were getting back to practice. Yeah, I'm sure. We tried to shield my our son from 
from the, all the, the COVID chat, we read a couple of books, you know, aimed at children for that age around the topic. But on the whole, we tried to really not talk about it and just didn't really want to induce anxiety. But we did introduce the idea of funny, the funny rules, we called it, um, in terms of what you weren't allowed to do and you weren't allowed to hug your nanny and all that kind of thing. And he really caught on to it and, you know, and was reminding us of the funny rules and reminding his nanny of the funny rules and nope, no hugs, funny rules. But you do worry about, you know, what subconsciously, what anxieties are creeping in there and what kind of unspoken things are being internalized, especially for children at that age, you maybe don't vocalize as much, you know, what they're feeling. And it is really, I think, a really important message to parents that that well-being is key, that and, and well-being is actually the basis for good learning as well, that if you feel safe and well-nurtured and happy in yourself, you'll learn better and, you know, your education will will benefit from it. There is no doubt, like evidence time after time has proven the importance of getting those learning dispositions right before we rush on to something of an academic nature. Uh, and I feel um, to some extent COVID has reminded us of the pri- those priorities, particularly where emotional well-being is concerned. If we don't have confident, secure children, well, how can we expect them to learn? They're going to be so pressured with getting the top mark in the class or doing well or this competitive society that we live in that they won't reach their full potential. And if they feel secure in themselves, confident learners, confident all-round little beings, well, then naturally they're going to do so much better later on. And when we do think of those who are deemed successful in later life, they have to be all-round characters. And unfortunately, it's not all about doing well on a test in literacy and numeracy. It's that holistic learning that makes us successful in later years. And sometimes I feel that uh, we as parents have to remind ourselves of that. It's not getting the top marks just in literacy and numeracy that matters. We want our children to be emotionally secure. We want our children to be able to interact socially with others. We want our children to be motivated learners who want to keep on learning and who just don't want to get away from it as early as, they, early as they possibly can because they have felt so under pressure throughout the whole process. When I was thinking about our, our conversation today and obviously early years is your is your speciality, I was thinking about my early years experience and I don't have too many direct memories of that of that age, but I went up into the attic and I was hunting through some paraphernalia and I found a photo in the in the Ulster Star. <laughs> of my P1 class. Obviously, it was newsworthy at the time. In 1987 in Northern Ireland, we needed hope that there was a, a next generation coming forward. And you can see me, um, I'm just for the benefit of the tape, showing Glenda a photo of me. Um, oh, we cute it. Thank you very much. I look I look kind of in a weird squatting position, like I'm about to jump up and grab my education with two hands or oh, something. Oh, to embrace uh, it for long. Or, or, yeah, perhaps. And, and I, I found my my number book um, and uh, I was five at the time so I'm not sure if it was p1 or p2 but it was interesting just to look through and see some of the things that I was learning at the time I see on page one I was asked to draw uh, a number of apples and I've and I've drawn eight apples with spikes coming out of them and the teacher said funny apples so I don't know if she was laughing at me or laughing with me but uh, there was obviously an expectation that I would I should know my numbers. I should, there's number bonds in there. There's, you know, counting and adding and, and all that kind of thing. 
and to me that seems like a, a, a normal stage to learn all that kind of stuff at but yet actually it's not a uniform experience across the western world in terms of models of education and if you look at like the scandinavian style they start a lot later like maybe around seven it's an interesting concept i suppose to many parents who maybe have younger children and might be stressing about their literacy and numeracy that there are other people just a few countries across that aren't stressing about that and are focusing on play and and a kind of a more informal approach to education. Uh, can you speak to a bit about those different models and how we compare and contrast to that? Yes, certainly. Well, I had the privilege to do my uh, doctorate many years ago. Um, it looked at Northern Ireland practice um, as compared with Danish practice for our um, four to six year old children, what is now known as our foundation stage children. I must say that I had the privilege then of uh, traveling to Denmark quite a number of times to do observations there and to engage with early years professionals there. Likewise, it was so refreshing in many respects to just see how relaxed they were all. Therefore, the six-year-olds were not in a formal primary school at that stage. They were still in what they called a kindergarten. And whilst our children at that stage were struggling with sitting at seats for the most part of the day, engaging in uh, mathematical computations, as you have shown us already, and that type of a, an experience, their children were running in the outdoors, climbing trees. They had these sort of like what I would call like a kind of a bonfire together. Again, they were running around those and experiencing, uh, you know, what it's like to have a fire in the outdoors. Um, like a forest school kind of experience. A very much like a forest school experience, jumping about in puddles and just natural learning experience and sitting on their pedagogue's knees, hugging them. You know, they would have been going maybe for walks to parks, but when they got to the park, it was just a natural learning. There wasn't anything, oh, let's look at the leaves and let's look at this, where we're trying to bring the learning out and at every stage we possibly can. It was just learning naturally. At that stage, um, when I, I started out in my PhD, I was still a practicing P1 teacher. And there's one little anecdote that sticks out in my mind so much. So I had come back from one of those Danish experiences where the children were outdoors, relaxed in their little wetsuits. You know, even the way they dressed was just epitomized relaxation. And on some occasions, they might have been running around with little more than their, their underwear on as well. And um, there I was back into the, the P1 classroom, the traditional P1 classroom a pre or foundation stage experience and um, I was out on playground duty uh, on this particular day and in the school where I worked we had some special needs units one of the classroom assistants came running up to me at this stage and says Glenda 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 you're going to have to come down here immediately and um, so I went down and we were lucky enough in our playground to have some beautiful trees beautiful trees who were just asking to be climbed by young children and one of our little special needs characters has decided it, that's what I'm exactly doing. I'm going up this tree and he was in the middle of the tree at the time. And the poor classroom assistant was um, extremely stressed. This child's going to fall. They're going to injure themselves and whatever. But I had learned from my Danish pedagogues that if a child has gone up so far in a tree, um, well, they'll be able to get back down again. And sure enough, with a little bit of coaxing, we got the little boy back down again. And so um, back to line up duty where the children were in their, their lines for each of their classrooms and whatever. And I remember as well, one of my teacher colleagues, one of my senior teacher colleagues at that time coming over to me and saying, oh, Glenda, I heard about the experience there, per you, per you, what are we going to do? We're going to have to put some barbed wire around that tree oh, and prevent no. the children from climbing. So that was 
I have two contrasting images, the image in my head of the children naturally climbing the trees, enjoying every minute of it and learning all in that process in a very natural way. And yet, where were we at that stage? Our children, barbed wire was seen as a safer option than the children actually having the fun of climbing the trees. You know, it brought me back to my own childhood experience as well. And I'm sure you all can hear from the accent. I lived in the heart of the countryside. My whole childhood experience was outdoors, playing in the garden, using the leaves, imagining them to be all sorts of things, you know what I mean? Vegetables that I would sell in my shop. And I remember as well making um, perfume with my sister as we thought from the rose petals and going down to the end of the stony lane and setting up a sign for people to come up on a veil of the perfume we had um, made with our rose petals, thinking we're going to be entrepreneurs of the future. But unfortunately, that <laughs> never happened. Um, I also had an old wheelbarrow and the, the wheelbarrow was my um, four by four Jeep. I went to a certain stone in the lane and that brought me to the local town of Dungannon. I went to another stone in the lane further up and that brought me to the big smoke to Belfast itself. It was a whole world of imagination. My big orange teddy bear was called Keith Weir. I don't know why he was called Keith Weir, but he was called <laughs> Keith Weir and he owned an oil rig. So I had aspirations of being a, a wife who was going to be kept, who was going to be extremely wealthy. But unfortunately, those days haven't turned out in reality. But uh, a world of imagination. And I think, unfortunately, our children of today are not getting that same natural play experience in the home. Parents of today, and I, I, I can totally identify with the parents because of the pressures that young children are under. We feel that we should be doing something of a learning style all, all of the time, setting them down at a laptop and playing games on the laptop where they get buzzing sounds if they get all of their, their tables correct or whatever it might be. Then not only that, as parents were under stress, well, yes, they go to school, but what do they do after school? They have to be great at swimming. They have to be great at rugby. They have to be great at all sorts of sports and whatever it might be. So they'll go to all of these after school activities as well. And then by the time we do get them home, they're wrecked and ready to go to bed. We don't get those opportunities to share those playful experiences with children in the same way as my mother would have been in the middle of my wee house we built together. That's where the real learning happens. That's where the real relationships grow. And I do feel that we have to get back to basics in Northern Ireland and remind ourselves what is so important to our young children. And that is those natural learning experiences to help them grow and blossom as our young adults of the future. I do feel that temptation sometimes with my three-year-old actually because I do feel he's probably at the at the level where I could maybe teach him about, you know, some number work, you know, basic literacy, because he seems that he, you know, he's he, he would be able for it. But actually, you know, from any research I've seen, there's no real advantage in that and potential disadvantages in, in rushing that because they could pick up on kind of uh, any anxieties coming from you around, you know, pressure around that. And actually what happens or what seems to happen is that their peers just catch up eventually anyway. And, and there's no real advantage. Is that is that the case? Very much so. And again, I can share just an experience from my own three sons because of the fact that I have been embracing this whole evidence about um, learning naturally and the importance of children's learning dispositions and whatever it might be. I did try in those early years with my children not to get the academic books out too soon in that respect. And I do recall my eldest son, who has been through the whole educational experience so far, not university yet, but hopefully going to head there. 
there. I do recall um, at the end of his year two and the beginning of his P3 being really concerned because uh, of the feedback that I was receiving from teachers that he couldn't sit at seats long enough. He wasn't engaging in the silent reading that was required of him. You know, he was behind his peers at that stage and really alarming me somewhat as if there was something wrong with my child. I spoke to colleagues at work. I was really getting myself stressed out. Have I really done something wrong with him as a result of depriving him of these so-called formal learning opportunities in those early years? But um, he has come to the end of that educational story in terms of school life in that respect. A child who has never got anything else other than an A grade. So there has been a success story to some extent where that's concerned. He just wasn't ready at that stage. He was a boy. He needed to to get out and play. He wasn't ready to sit at a seat for uh, the most part of that day and engage in formal learning activities. He wasn't ready to be compared with his peers And sometimes I think we need to sit back and remember that each and every child is unique and each and every child learns in a completely different way. And just because somebody ends up uh, being a little bit behind others in those early years, it doesn't mean to say that they'll stay behind those children all of their lives. There is the opportunity for them to catch up. Yeah, I was reading in a, um, I think it was called the Good Childhood Report. It was released uh, this year uh, on the Children's Society website. And the stats around the the British 10 to 15 year olds was saying that we are one of the most unhappiest nations for children of that age in Europe and their sense of purpose in life was lacking. They didn't feel satisfied with their lives. They weren't making friends as much as other countries. And there was a fear of failure that came out that they were scared of not getting things right the first time. And this is all ranked against against other countries. And yet, if you look at, I think, Finland are ranking pretty much at the top of that happiness and that sense of self and a sense of purpose, but also doing really well in the academic side. And yet they don't really start until seven and they don't narrow their curriculum um, and start choosing like subject, you know, special subject areas until I think like 16. They can go down vocational routes. There's no real formal exams until maybe really later on. And now I'm not saying that that's the only cause. Obviously, these things are complex, but, you know, there seems to be a strong link there between that more kind of relaxed, less pressurized environment and less competitive environment and this kind of really important aspect of well-being and self-confidence and, and ability to make friends and all that kind of thing. Yes, it's really back to what I said earlier about the importance of that holistic learning experience in those um, early years and prioritising the child somewhat in those early years as well, in the sense that, as I said, all children learn differently. And I do feel that that open-ended play-based approach enables, you know, all children to do so. It also enables the teachers to actually tune in to the different needs and interests of the children and explore them more fully. It takes away the pressure in many respects from our teachers too, enabling them to, again, to learn with the children and to bring out the best in each and every child. I do feel, and the evidence is suggesting, as I've said time and time again, that that really does pay off in the longer term, enabling uh, children to learn in a playful environment with a 
playful professionals, adults who know how to relax and play alongside the children, but who are skillful in drawing out the learning from those playful experiences with the children at every opportunity they can find. When children have that background of that, those social skills, those emotional skills, physical skills, as well as those sort of um, natural cognitive learning skills as well, well then uh, in many respects they're set up to learn well in a more formal curriculum that they will encounter in their, their later school days. But there really is a need for that kind of playful pedagogy to be infused throughout the entire curriculum, even in those early years of secondary schooling, you know, post-primary likewise. Children learn when they're interested you and I will read a book that we're interested in. We'll sit down and listen to a podcast that we're interested in. We're not going to sit and engage in something that we have absolutely no interest at all or isn't in any way interesting for us. So the importance of um, making things interesting for young children, as well as having those sound relationships with them right throughout their schooling is absolutely paramount for their later learning. My wife, as you know, she attended Stremulus back in the day when we were dating and she was training to be a teacher and she has fond memories of you from her time there. Uh, but I remember her talking a lot about the revised curriculum at the time and how the curriculum was moving towards this kind of more holistic view of learning. And there was she did a piece on thinking skills and the importance of that. And it felt like it was moving in the right direction. You know, are we are we there yet or have we more more ways to go in, in terms of that way of thinking? And and yeah, I suppose where, where are we at the minute in terms of the UK and, and our curriculum? Well, I do feel that we have the foundation stage curriculum in place. And I, I really worked hard with my colleagues who were involved in the, the whole enriched curriculum that came before that in a way to ensure something that was more um, appropriate for our four to six-year-old children in those early years. And the foundation stage encapsulates that on paper. There's absolutely no doubt. It's a very good curricular document in that respect. You know, if it were put into practice, it would really enable the children to have a, a more appropriate learning experience. Um, I do feel, though, that whilst we have certainly moved on and our inspection reports uh, reveal that, that things are definitely better in our early years of schooling today than what they were uh, 15, 20 years ago. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, we do have some teachers who still don't feel really confident and competent in terms of putting that playful approach into practice. It's not an easy option for teachers. Some of us, um, again, with the parent hat on, might feel, oh, sure, all they're doing down there is playing. They don't realise that to enable uh, children to learn through a playful um, experience, it does require high skill on the part of the teachers involved and a lot of hard work and energy likewise. It's easy to have children sitting at seats all day uh, working through workbooks in that respect. And so uh, I, I do feel that um, whilst the, the government has supported a foundation stage curriculum and to some extent um, some training is being done through um, EA but at the same time there's much more that could be done to support our teachers in the classroom. We can't do it on a shoestring and there's an investment that needs to be placed. We do need to 
get away from a top-down approach in Northern Ireland. We're small enough to be able to do so, to get a, an excellent education system for our young children. I'm not suggesting for one minute that we haven't something that's very good, but we could do something even better if we were to invest in a bottom-up approach and to prioritise those early years of learning and not see them as sort of the introduction to something uh, to help children for the future, but in its own right in itself. And um, I do feel that sometimes uh, principals and teachers are so under pressure to get things right in terms of literacy and numeracy. We still have a transfer test that's lurking in the distance there as well. I do recall from my own teaching days being asked as a P1 teacher, will my child get the transfer? You know, so that's in parents' heads right from the outset. I do feel as a result of that, there is a downward pressure on teachers. And uh, while some of them are really wanting to go with play and to do the best that they possibly can for the youngest children, they do feel that there's um, almost a pressure on them to have so many targets uh, achieved by the end of that P1 year before they move on to P2, et cetera, et cetera. And then that interferes from that natural uh, playful experience that they want to give their youngest children. Yes, there seems to be a lot of uh, huge amounts of pressure on, on teachers. I mean, whenever my wife was doing her, her teaching practice and then again starting uh, to get into teaching after Strand, she, her passion and, and and what she was really interested in was in, was in the well-being and the nurturing side. And, and she really saw the importance of that and that kids couldn't learn unless they felt safe and happy and contented in the classroom. And yet the pressures that are on teachers uh, to tick a lot of other boxes um, are huge and, and sometimes leaves not very much time to focus on that kind of nurturing side of things. Like teachers are are often expected to be kind of pseudo parents, um, social workers and uh, mental health professionals. Um, they have to diversify how they're teaching to fit the different abilities in the class or sometimes special needs that need to be considered. It's a lot to juggle. I mean, are we expecting too much from our teachers? Well, I do feel our teachers need support and I do feel our teachers in the early years particularly need support in that respect. Um, I do feel you can end up with far too many in any one setting as well. So whilst they, they definitely do need support from classroom assistants or teaching assistants, as I would like to call them, I think we don't want to overburden the number of staff within any one setting either, because that can interfere with the actual um, learning experience also. But I do feel um, they need support. They need financial support in terms of resources, resources in terms of um, having that good support from a classroom assistant and also then the resources that they need to enable them to have a, a high quality playful learning environment in place. But likewise, I do feel that we need to allow our teachers to be the experts of what goes on in that classroom. They're the ones that know the children best they know the kind of experience that each and every one of those children need. And sometimes I feel we are deprofessionalizing our teachers by overdoing, you know what I mean? You must do this, you must do the other. And there's so many, many different policies and strategies and whatever that need to be put in place that the actual heart of that rich pedagogy is almost taken away from them. And I know from our own PGCE students that I work really closely with and whatever, and they're just out in their first placement at the minute in nursery settings. And of course, they were getting themselves all alarmed about oh, what happens? How could I feel this experience? This is so important to me and whatever it might be. And as I always say, that initial experience is all about those relationships. 
And what we're looking for in those early days is to make sure that those student teachers can relate to other young children. If they can't do that, well, then we're doing them a disservice if they're allowed to continue, because realistically, that's what teaching should all be about. You relating well to those children, getting to know those children so well that then you can use your skillful knowledge in terms of how do I ensure that they learn best. So the relationships must come first. They must be in place. And I do feel that if we are overdoing the whole emphasis on literacy and numeracy strategies, et cetera, et cetera, that puts that pressure on those teachers and then interferes with those budding relationships that they need to develop in any classroom, but particularly in those early years classrooms. So I feel let's get back to realising that our teachers are highly trained. If we look, we go back to the Norwegian example. In Norway, teachers are highly respected. Teachers are deemed uh, to be on the par of our medical doctors, our dentists, our lawyers. They're seen as highly professional in that respect. And I do feel that that's what we should be trying to target within Northern Ireland, seeing our teachers as those professionals who know best. And if they are implementing something that's more play-based in perspective, that we know that they're doing that because our children need that and they'll learn best through that kind of experience. Mm. And what you say about relationship is, uh, is so true. And you do, like I, you remember, maybe not what teachers said to you in the classroom, but you do remember how they made you feel whenever you think about your, your especially your early years teachers, you know, that it seems to stick. And, and those relationships just seem to be really central to the whole learning experience. I do remember one, one, <laughs> one teacher, she was a lovely lady, but she, in, in, primary, in my primary school, she was the one you went to if you had wobbly teeth and she was a chief extractor. Uh, I don't know if that role exists in primary schools anymore. I imagine you're not. <laughs> don't know whether that might be allowed with. these days. <laughs> <laughs> that was life in the, life in the 80s. Scary oh dear time. goodness. <laughs> Actually thinking about the COVID and the impact of COVID in the classroom, the fact that teachers are having to wear PPE and masks and keep their distance, you know, that can't be good for rapport and relationship building. It's got to be damaging. No, I, I totally uh, would agree. And that's something that I really cautioned in many respects, you know, um, whilst I totally understand that we have to prioritise the, the health and well-being of our teachers and our children in the classroom and keep them as safe as we possibly can. I do feel that the, 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 the wearing of PPE, particularly with our young youngest children it's almost um alien to any experience they have up to this point you know and uh, as you say so well Roger interferes with those relationships um so much in that respect the two meter distancing when I was a, a p1 teacher it was just you the children gravitated towards you in many respects and I remember the principal coming in one day for me for some reason he couldn't find me because it was down on the floor again right in the heart of them and that's yeah. what early years teaching is all about and unfortunately COVID's depriving teachers of that experience again, that natural um, experience with the kids in the classroom. Uh, I do feel a number of our teachers are using their common sense in ways. They're highly creative, our early years workforce, and finding as many ways around that as they possibly can and to ensure that they keep the children safe, that they keep themselves safe, but that it doesn't interfere with that natural, playful learning experience that the children really love. 
love and learn from. In closing, Glenda, what would your message be to to parents? I mean, we're obviously we're we've come back from lockdown, but there's the times ahead are uncertain. We don't know if we'll end up back there. There's certainly self-isolation, all that. There's going to be some kind of blended approach to some degree in terms of face-to-face learning and distance learning, online learning. And all that is anxiety inducing for parents. What would your message be in summary to to parents who are struggling with that or worried about how things are going in their child's education? Well, COVID's going to be with us, unfortunately, Sue. I know there's some light at the end of the tunnel with this vaccine, but it will take time before COVID disappears from our lands in many respects. So I do feel that something that I was reading yesterday um, from um, the National Children's Bureau, we do have to put children at the heart of what's going on at the minute. Mm -hmm. We can't have them on the sidelines. So we're going to have to ensure that we see the challenges that uh, COVID brings as opportunities in many respects, where our children are concerned. And whilst there are those vulnerable uh, within uh, our community that we do have to keep safe and be respectful of and whatever that might be, I do feel that we can't continue to deprive our children of those things that come natural to them. They have to be able to play, you know, in that sense, have that downtime and have that opportunity, because if not, we're going to be contending with other real challenges where our children is concerned in terms of mental ill health. And that's something that we definitely do not want to be happening um, as a result of COVID. So letting our children have time, particularly our young children, to play in the outdoors, to have opportunities to let off steam as well. And then our older children, likewise, um, having that downtime and relating, having opportunities to relate with our peers, keeping our schools open if we possibly can for as long as possible, not necessarily just for the learning aspect, but also for those relationships peer relationships. Our young teenagers need that as well and opportunities to chat with their friends and uh, I would still call it to some extent playing with their friends likewise. So um, realistically speaking, in a nutshell, let's embrace the challenges of COVID um, as opportunities. It's given us the opportunity to think about play and playful learning once again and of how important it is for our young children and indeed for all our children to some extent. Seeing, uh, embracing the outdoors and seeing the importance of getting our children outdoors and if we have gardens making sure that they avail of the opportunities that are there if not giving them the opportunity to go to the local park whatever that might be they do need that outside um, experience and we do know again from our experts that those outdoors that again they, that we are less at risk where this terrible disease is concerned in the outdoors relax to some extent if that's at all possible with our children try not to pressurize them where the learning is concerned. I know um, as a parent that that's important. I'm not suggesting that it's not. But at the same time, um, being there for them, giving them the opportunities to chat with us, sharing the learning experience with them and enabling them to share with their peers likewise in a playful, more relaxed fashion. Brilliant. Listen, Glenda, thanks so much. I could talk to you all day about this, but we'll have to bring it to a close. But I really appreciate you coming on. And I think there's some really key messages there for parents. So Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.